0: Hey, everyone. It's Caleb, and I'm so excited that you've decided to spend a few minutes today here with me on the Learner's Corner podcast. Today, I am honored to be joined by Dominique Gilliard. Dominique is uh, is a previous guest on the Learner's Corner podcast. Uh, A few years ago, we talked with him about his book, Rethinking Incarceration, and today I am talking with him about his brand new book, Subversive Witness, Scripture's Call to Leverage Privilege. And I really enjoyed reading this book as uh, as I'm going to talk, you know, a lot about Dominique or as I'm going to talk with uh, Dominique about in the interview coming up. Um, but I feel like uh, he just does a really good job of helping us see scripture through a lens that we probably don't normally look through or I'll just say I had not looked through before. And so... Looking forward to jumping into that conversation here in just a couple of minutes. But before we do that, if this happens to be your first time listening to the Learner's Corner podcast, there's really two core beliefs that drive us here on the podcast. And the first is that we want to create a safe place to have difficult conversations. Because if you're like me, you've probably gone throughout life and maybe you've realized that you can't just talk with anyone about anything or about, you know, any sort of subject because you just know that it's not going to go well. Either because the other person is so convinced of, um, of their beliefs. In fact, I don't even think that's the right way say it, but they're so uh, dogmatic in their beliefs that it's hard to have a conversation because the other person is just so set on trying to convince you of what they believe instead of of engaging in meaningful dialogue around that. And that's what we want to do here in the Learner's Corner is we want to create that meaningful dialogue because we believe, and this is kind of the second one, that we can learn from anyone and from everyone and from anything and from everything, and that we don't need to agree with someone completely in order to learn from them. And sometimes we learn from the things that they did well. And sometimes we learn from the things that people did not do well, including ourselves in many of that in many times as well. And so if this happens to be your first time, so glad that you're here and listening to other listening, you've chosen a great episode uh, to pick up on. Um, And if there's something that you would love us to talk about or cover on the podcast, I would love to hear from you. The best way to reach out to me is uh, through this email address, learnerscornerpodcast at gmail.com. Would love to hear from you of whether that be uh, topics that you would love covered on the podcast or um, or guests for the podcast as well that you think that might um, provide some great conversation and, uh, and stimulate our thinking and discussion and all of that as well. So let me tell you a little bit about Dominique. Dominique is the Director of Racial Righteousness and Reconciliation for the Evangelical Covenant Church. He is an ordained minister. Dominique has served in pastoral ministry in Atlanta, Chicago, and Oakland. He also serves on the board of directors for the Christian Community Development Association. He is the author of Rethinking Incarceration, as I mentioned earlier with the subtitle advocating for justice that restores, which won the 2018 University Press Reader's Choice Award and was named one of Outreach Magazine's 2019 Outreach Resources of the Year in Social Issues slash Justice. And uh, we'll link back to the episode that we did earlier with Dominique as well. And without any further wait, here's my conversation with Dominique Gilliard. Well, Dominique, so excited to have you back on the Learner's Corner podcast today.
1: Yeah, it's great to be back with you and your community.
0: Yeah, and just as we're getting started, one of the things that uh, that really stood out to me, just as I was reading through Subversive Witness, is you start out by dedicating the book, and you dedicate it to a few people that you seem uh, pretty normal to people who mattered to you in your life. And then you end it with dedicating the book to the descendants of the Greenwood District of Tulsa, Oklahoma, um, who lost um, their loved ones and, and the people who, who were who they loved, who were closest to them, who were murdered in um, in Black Wall Street? And so, I was just curious to just wondering what led you to to just personally connect with that in such a way that you wanted to dedicate the book to them.
1: Yeah, I think there's this entire history. This this ho- entire segment of U.S. history that is yet to be grieved and lamented and black wall street is the quintessential example of that Um, most folks didn't know what that was two years ago Um, and it's something that you know i've been quite aware and many people in the black community have been quite aware of for a long time, but it's a a perfect illustration of how when we talk about what it looks like for us to come together at the table to try to pursue reconciliation, how what that means for us is very different depending upon the history that we know and don't know. Um, And for me, the fact that you had a a racial massacre of this nature that the state of Oklahoma was not even including within its textbooks. You have the Tulsa mayor, the mayor of Tulsa, who said he didn't learn about it until a couple years ago. It is the perfect illustration of what I'm trying to prompt us towards in the book. Like if we're really going to be people who are living out the biblical commission to be ambassadors, of reconciliation, to be repairs of the breach, to be co-laborers with Christ in reconciling all of the brokenness that exists in the world to God, that means we have to go to some of these hard places. We have to have some of these difficult conversations, but we do it knowing that there's a power at work in and through us that's greater than us that allows us to stay at the table together and allows us to do courageous things that honestly you and I would shrink back from doing in and of our own strength. And so I wanted to dedicate the book to folks who have been forced to to mourn in isolation because of our lack of integrity to have the difficult conversations and to open ourselves up to the transformative power of the spirit when we're willing to go beyond our human
0: limitations. Mm -hmm. What do you think it is that, um, I don't know if it's just a society or a society thing or a thing in the United States, um, but causes us to resist learning about the past and all being very concerned about the future, and that's that's true of matters of race. That's also true of matters of just history in general, and especially church history. Any any thoughts on that?
1: I think the history is hard, and I think the history the history feels like the only thing it will lead us to is paralysis and so i think people don't want to feel that much less be stuck in that feeling and so there is this notion that there is no benefit in looking backwards all we need to do is pay attention to what is and what will be but you cannot truly understand what is and what will be without looking backwards um and so i think you know there So much of our our culture is built on the avoidance of suffering or the avoidance of topics that are inconvenient. And I think that doesn't stop outside the church, but it ultimately carries over into the church, but also within uh, our world. And I think we underestimate how we have the complexity to be dexterous. Like we can reckon with the past and work on the present and the future at the same time. And I think there is this real fear. And I think this is what Unconfessed, and I'm gonna bring it back to the church. I think this is what Unconfessed Sin does to us. It makes us very anxious about what will happen when folks realize The skeletons in our closet. And I think for so many folks, the denial of history is a way to avoid reckoning with the skeletons in our closet because there is a belief that if folk really see the depth and the breadth of the depravity, that people aren't going to want to be connected to us anymore. We're going to become unlovable. People are going to want revenge. People are going to want vengeance. And and I think it it makes us function out of our uh, our shadow side as opposed to our centered self. And if we really are gospel people who truly believe that scripture is real, and true when it says that there's nothing that we can do that can separate us from the love of Christ. That assurance should compel us to do the difficult work of actually going to these dark and hard places, because we know that the the harshness of them don't have the last word, but there's a redemptive reason why we're going to those places. And that redemption leads to freedom and healing and transformation. And those are the missional impulses that should help us to actually have the courage to, to go to these difficult places because there really is something better on the other side. Um, but I, I love the way that Brian Stevenson talks about it. I quote, I quote it in this book where he talks about, I believe in truth and reconciliation. But I believe that those concepts are s- sequential. There's truth that makes way for reconciliation. And we all too often want to skip over the truth and just get to the reconciliation. But there's no way to true reconciliation, biblical reconciliation, but through truth.
0: Mm-hmm. Can you maybe talk a little bit more, tease out, like, how should we respond in and obviously you know your your book is centered a lot around privilege and you know topics and matters of race but um but history is is a lot bigger than that what what have you learned about how should we approach handling history no matter what the topic is um whenever it's a painful part of our history
1: yeah i think we have to have uh the humility and the integrity to know that history is written by the victors. And so there are always going to be narratives and elements of the truth that have been left out of history that's been recorded and institutionalized and passed down. And so we have to be intentional about seeking out the voices that were excluded from the curation of the narratives that have been passed down to us. And most often, regardless of what society you're in, uh, those are going to be the poor. Those are going to be women. Those are going to be uh, a group, that a non-white group. Those are going to be groups of people who have some kind of disability, be it physical or mental uh, impairments. Um, And we have to seek after their experiences to have a more well-rounded understanding of history. Um, So that would be the one thing. The other thing that I would say is that we have to look at how a country, a institution, a corporation has lived after the said event has happened. Um, has there been any kind of intentional departure from the ways of the past that led to that violation, that sin, um, that bears witness to the fact that they are there has actually been true repentance, or has there been this kind of, obst- obst- uh, my language is failing me, has there been these ways in which basically we have just tried to re-mystify the fact that we're trying to do the same thing that we've been doing? So is there is there some kind of fruit that's been birthed through keeping it with repentance that has said, we acknowledge that this was wrong and we never want to make this mistake again. So because of that, we're now going to do X, Y, and Z as forms of accountability to make sure that we don't go back to that place. Or is there a lot of things that seem eerily familiar in the patterns and the structures and the the way in which these institutions are engaging the world and our neighbors.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's one of the things that really struck me of going through the book is you talked about there's a difference between apologizing and, you know, repentance and reconciliation. Can you tease that out a little bit? Because I think most of the time our go-to move is that we say, I'm sorry, we apologize, and that's about it.
1: Yeah, yeah. And that's why I love John the Baptist's words in Matthew three um, eight, where he says, there should be fruit in keeping with repentance. And when you think about it, you know, Repentance is an active turning away from sin and returning back to God. And there should be something in our life that bears witness to that, that demonstrates that that that, that articulates that into the world and our community. And so often um, what we do is we apologize for something But that doesn't mean that our behavior is different. That doesn't mean that we are committed to um, bearing witness. One of the things I say in in the book all the time is to who and whose we are through how we're now going to live and love in the world. And I think there are a few stories that flesh this out to the degree that Zacchaeus' story does. Um, And so in the story of Zacchaeus, I really press into something that, honestly, in my Christian formation, I, I struggled with on a personal level because I didn't feel like my pastors and my ministers and my Sunday school teachers were willing to address this tension in the text. in the fact that Z- Jesus doesn't tell Zacchaeus that... Um, <laughs> He doesn't affirm his repentance until Zacchaeus articulates the fact that he's actually going to enact reparations for his violations. And he he comes to the realization, and I don't know if this is due to how proximate he was to Jesus, so there was this deeper revelation that kind of came upon him um, in the presence of our Lord and Savior, but he comes into this recognition that it's not enough for him to just say, I'm sorry, and to keep all of the money and the wealth and the possessions that he had accumulated from robbing his neighbors. And that's exactly what he was doing as a tax collector. And that was one of the things that for me, I always wondered why, when Scripture gives like its short list of the most noter- n- notorious characters, tax collectors are always there. I'm like, yeah, they're complicit with you know systemic injustice and institutional sin. But there's a lot of folks who are like, Why, why are tax collectors so bad? And so, as you know, I start that chapter really trying to answer that question because I it was a question for me and my own, my entire discipleship. It kind of lingered, but I never heard a church press into it. I, in seminary, I never had professors who really pressed into it. And I knew that I couldn't be alone in that wondering. And so I wanted to spend some time there and really parse that out. And it really helps you understand why John the Baptist, right after saying that in Matthew 3, 8, goes on to couple tax collectors with soldiers, which is a very odd pairing on the surface. But then you start to realize that tax collectors were colluding with imperial muscle to exploit people and to, to rob them, and in many cases, to make them enter into these agreements where there was no way they were going to be able to pay, so therefore they were going to be indebted to them in ways that they can continue to exploit and enact usury and these different things. And so all of this is to say that Zacchaeus was very well aware of the fact that he was complicit with oppression, and not just complicit, but driving it as a chief tax collector. But When he had his reckoning moment with Jesus, he knew that it wasn't enough to just say, Jesus, I'm sorry for what I've done. And nothing else changed about his life. There had to be fruit in keeping with repentance. And that's the thing that differentiates an apology or confession from repentance, because though there are words, there's an acknowledgement. But repentance is followed up by a turning away from your sin back to God in a way that it that breeds fruit in our lives and our communities and our relationships. And that's what we see Zacchaeus do when he says, Not only will I pay back what I've stolen, but I'll pay it back four times because I realize that what I've done didn't just defraud individual people, but it's created systems and structures of uh, a perpetual under cast in this community, and it's impacted people that I'll never see or know. And I have to take responsibility for that if I'm truly going to be reconciled, meaning if I'm going to get back into right relationship with both you, God, and my neighbor.
0: Mm-hmm. And, uh, and feel free to say anything on this. It, it's an expression of love yeah, as well, too. For sure.
1: And, I mean, to me, I think our ability to really reckon with the difference between confession and repentance bears witness to our new life in Christ. Because mm-hmm. confession is something that we can do in, a, in and of our own strength. But repentance is something that takes us beyond our human limitations and, and really brings us into the will of God afresh and anew and really allows us to start to bear witness to who and whose we are through how we respond to the harm and the sin that we were complicit with or that we drove. And so we get a chance to demonstrate to the world that something is different because of the fact that we have found new life in Christ. And when we just confess, you know, anybody can say some words. Now, I mean, uh, I want to say, it does take a level of maturity to own up to what we've done. So I don't want to minimize confession to the point that it has no value. But for Christians, this is really what differentiates us from the rest of the world. The rest of the world confesses stuff, but we're called to repentance. And we bear witness to that repentance in ways that produces kingdom fruit in our lives, our communities, and our relationships.
0: Mm-hmm. One of the things that uh, stood out to me a lot as I was going through the book is you say this phrase, and there's so much alluding to Romans 12, to, you know, the patterns of this world. And one of the things I wanted to ask you about, and I think we were kind of talking about a way of which we've fallen into the pattern of this world is through, you know, apologizing instead of repentance. What are some of the other ways that you've seen us fall into the patterns of this world, particularly in, in the church?
1: yeah. Um, I think our unwillingness to have this conversation about privilege is one of the ways that we have conformed to the patterns of this world. Um, I think one of the ways that um we really see this happen is that because and I, I say this with all the love and grace and humility that I can, but because of our lack of integrity as the church to have these difficult conversations about the ways in which we are complicit with sin um, or have theologically legitimated sin through the justification of slavery, through the doctrine of discovery, through the ways in which we have misuse scripture in ways that have really uh, subjugated women or not allowed women to live into their full flourishing and God's call upon their lives. Um, the way in which we have chosen not to honestly, and I, the word I prefer to use in this book is soberly, soberly deal with these conversations and therefore have allowed the world to dictate How these conversations happen um, is one of the ways that we conform to the patterns of the world, because what has happened is because we haven't had the needed conversations in the church, the world has actually dictated how these conversations happen. And so when we try to come back and have these conversations in the church, they're denounced as political conversations instead of being seen as biblical theological conversation because we've lacked the integrity to have the hard conversations first. And the world saw that and they decided to have the conversations and they framed them in a way that wasn't rooted in the biblical text. But that's really because we didn't do the work first. And so now when we try to come back and reclaim the conversations and say, actually, these are biblical theological folks are like nope these are political and i don't want anything to do with politics in the church and so it's really one of the ways in which um we've done it but i'll I'll bring it down even more um within so many of our congregations um historically we've said that the conversation about race is a secular conversation in which the gospel is not concerned which is not true at all um now the gospel doesn't talk about race because race is a social construct that emerged after scri- scripture was written. But scripture does very much talk about ethnocentrism, um, which is the way in which we treat people differently and less made in the image of God because of their ethnic identity, i.e. in Exodus, we see the Egyptian empire build this prosperous, flourishing Economic empire that is dependent upon the dehumanization, subjugation, and ex- and enslavement of Hebrews, um, and so we we see this kind of reality in the Persian Empire, where there is going to be this eradication of the Jews because of their ethnic identity. So we see Scripture really reckoning with the fact that because of sin, certain ethnic groups see themselves as superior than others, and treat them less as made in the image of God because of that that worldly logic and scripture calls that out and tells us that we are not just to conform to it but we're actually supposed to bear witness to a kingdom worldview that says that we know that all of our neighbors are equitably made in the image of God and any kind of logic or worldview that tells us that that's not true is anti-gospel. Like scripture explicitly says that. Um, And so that gives us a blueprint for how we understand and respond to the complexities of race in our day and time. Um, But, for us to be able to say, like the gospel is not concerned with these things; these are secular issues, is a way that we've conformed to the pattern of this world. Uh, the way in which um, we, the way in which we don't take economic exploitation seriously um, in the church, and all of the passages that can consistently name it as a sin in which God is concerned with, but we don't integrate that into our discipleship in the way that we um, preach and teach biblical passages uh, in a way that most folks don't really have any kind of real teaching about what the gospel has to say about economic exploitation. Um, That's conforming to the pattern of this world, particularly in a country where, you know, a lot of our Wealth and prosperity is rooted in economic exploitation, uh, be it from land theft from indigenous people to enslavement of African american well, Black people, um, and many of which have become af- African Americans. To you know, uh, broken treaties with our indigenous sisters and brothers. To you know, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, like all of these different. And so, I think in that way. The culture has informed how we read and interpret scripture, and therefore what we preach and teach when we disciple our members. And that is something that has really held the church captive in regards to being a prophetic voice and a transformative presence in the world, in regards to trying to advocate for a system of justice that is more reflective of the love, mercy, and justice of Jesus Christ. Um, and then lastly, I'll offer up one more example yeah. that's connected to the book. Um, it's kept us content with a criminal justice system that's just not just. Uh, uh, we have a legal system, uh, as Brian Stevenson likes to say, that treats people better if they're rich and guilty than if they're poor and innocent. And that is wealth, not guilt, that informs culpability within our present system. Uh, our system has undeniable racial and class disparities in it. But most Christians are apathetic and re- in light of that reality. Um, and so in much the same way that we see kind of the reality that Paul and stylus step into in Acts 16, uh, but they show us that the gospel does actually call us to intervene in a system that might actually work for us, but we recognize it's not just for our neighbors, Um, And our our legal system is supposed to be just for all people, uh, irregardless of citizenship status, class, mental cognition, able-bodiedness, race, gender. And when we see that that's not the case, the people of God are called to respond and intervene to work to be, again, going back to Isaiah 58, uh, repairs of the breach. And that, passage, that that phrase is so important for the body of Christ because it tells us that sin has caused breaches in our world, not just relational, but also systemic and institutional. And as people who are commissioned to be ambassadors of reconciliation, people who are partnering with Christ, empowered by the Spirit to reconcile the world, which means not just broken people, but also the broken systems and structures of our day and time to God, we have to be intentional about seeing the breaches, hearing the cries of our wounded neighbors that arise from the breaches, and having a heart to respond um, in a way that bears witness to the the kingdom and the love, mercy, and justice of Jesus. So when we don't respond, when we see oppression happening to our neighbors, and we choose to apathetically respond, that's a way we conform to the pattern of this world. And I'll I'll land it this way. Um, John 13, uh, 34 and 35, Jesus gives us a new commission, uh, a new commandment. And he says that by how we love one another, the world will know that we belong to him. When we see injustice going on in our world, And this is one of the ways that unbridled privilege really um, is most manifested in our lives. Um, The world teaches us that everything, uh, that blood is thicker than water. And it says that we only have to care about injustice and oppression when it directly impacts us. But the gospel teaches us that baptismal waters are thicker than our ancestral than our biological bloodlines and it's ultimately baptism that re- redefines our who our family is and who we belong to and that we are actually an interconnected body of Christ so that when one part of the body hurts we all hurt when we don't respond as if we are an interconnected body of Christ when we see injustice and oppression going on in another part of our state or our city or our nation that doesn't directly impact us. And we say, oh, that sucks, but it's not impacting me. I don't have to be concerned. Um, Families being separated at the Southern border is a, Latin issue, not an issue that's impacting me as an African American. Uh, me Too and Church too is a horrid reality. But as a male, I don't have to be concerned about that. Those are that is a worldly response. That is me bearing witness to the fact that I have been conformed to the pattern of this world because I don't understand that what happens to one part of the body impacts us all. And when I see Anti gospel realities infringing upon the shalom that God desires for all of God's children that are targeting certain communities and impairing their ability to live fully and freely into what God has created them to be. And I can apathetically pass by on the other side. I am conforming to the pattern of this world. And that's why the passage of the Good Samaritan is so important because it tells us when we exploit privilege for our own selfish gain or when we are seduced by Satan. And I want to be clear because we don't like to talk about the devil enough, but um, (laughs) scripture is clear. It tells us that God has a missional purpose, but it also tells us that Satan has a missional purpose. And Satan's missional purpose is to kill, steal and destroy our witness. And when we see injustice and oppression happening to our neighbors and we turn a blind eye to it, because it doesn't directly impact us or it will inconvenience our lives to intervene or it will cost us something to actually step in and to bear witness to the love, mercy, and justice of Jesus Christ, we are conforming to the patterns of this world. And so for me, when I talk about privilege, um, one of the things I try to talk about in the book, and I'll stop here is that we have to understand that, um, unbridled privilege that means when it's unchecked and um we're not aware of it and we're not strategically thinking about how we could use it for the kingdom um it will seduce us into conforming to the patterns of this world into buying into these worldly logics that tell us that all we have to be concerned about is our own individual flourishing or the embetterment of our nuclear families. Um, But the gospel has a different message, and it tells us that what we have is not just for us, but we're blessed to be a blessing, Um, and that we are people who have the opportunity to use privilege missionally to advance the kingdom and sacrificially love our neighbor. But scripture is very clear about the fact that privilege exists But there's going to constantly be this temptation to exploit privilege for our selfish gain. Um, But if we are intentional about trying to be Christ-like in our disposition, particularly looking towards Philippians 2, we get the opportunity to see that we can... Reckon with privilege, affirm that it's real, and then strategically leverage it to advance the kingdom and sacrificially love our neighbors. And so one of the reasons why I think people are so afraid of the conversation about privilege is that most of the times the conversation about privilege has felt like an indictment like there is only negative that comes from this priv- this conversation and all privilege is about is talking about the ways in which I am a burden to community as opposed to a way that I can think about being a blessing to community, and so I wanted to expand the conversation because I think scripture expands the conversation. And but this is one of the ways, one of the consequences of us not having the integrity to have the higher conversation and allowing the the world to dictate how this conversation is happening. And so we've forsaken some of the ways that privilege can actually be missionally a blessing, um, and really put us in unique places to advance the kingdom and sacrificially love our neighbor if we're willing to submit ourselves and our privilege to the guidance of the Holy
0: Spirit. Mm-hmm. Would you mind teasing out kind of what the, what you were saying, the blessing of privilege can look like and how we, how we can use that responsibly?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I, I talk about, um, you know, there's there's multiple manifestations of privilege, um, there are some privileges that are not of God, um, and but they are realities in our in our world. Um, so those privileges are things that really are vestiges of the sins of our foreparents, and so um, when we live in a nation. Within our Declaration of Independence, where we refer to indigenous people as merciless Indian savages, and where we have a legacy of enslaving Black people and legally classifying them as property, um, there are vestiges of racism that still are at play within our nation. And that leads to... This kind of sliding scale of humanity, where certain people are viewed as more made of the made in the image of God than others, and therefore certain people are respected, treated with more dignity and honored in a way that others aren't. Like that's an anti-gospel manifestation of privilege. Like God never condoned that. God never desired that. And that's a pattern of this world that Christians are not called to comply with Um, but it is still a reality and so knowing that it's still a reality how do we think strategically about what what doors are open to white people um, in this nation or i'll even make it more personal like one of the things i think is really what i'm trying to model in this conversation is that it's really easy to talk about sins that other people benefit from um, and not talk about the ways in which we benefit. So, uh, the similar history can be painted in regards to gender in our country. And as a male, I have the luxury of not actually having to really think critically about the ways in which I'm advantaged in this society at, in a way that my sisters aren't. Um, and so, for me, I have the opportunity because of the way that this world and worldly empires are structured in which they, they continue to exasperate, uh, exas- exacerbate, um, these kind of discrepancies and these disparities, um, in a way that normalized them to the point that we don't actually really question them anymore. So, I, as a man, um, get invitations and offers to to speak at places and to to lead uh, things within the church that many of my sisters don't get invited to. Um, I know that, and as someone who knows that, I have a responsibility to act in light of that knowledge, and so. It's not enough for me to just accept invitations and to continue to just throw my hands up and say, hey, well, this is just the way things are. There's nothing I can do about it. There's actually is something that I can do about it. I can actually have conversations with people who want my voice but want to exclude the voices of my sisters and say, actually, I'm not okay coming to lend my voice and my knowledge to this gathering if you're not going to invite my sisters as well. Um, because again, what's distinctive about the church if we function the way that the rest of the world does? Um, we are supposed to be a counter-cultural community that bears witness to the fact that something different is possible. Um, and, so for me, I just really want us to have an honest conversation about the impact of sin. And sin is something that has distorted our vision um, and distorted the way in which we engage in the world. And so sin is something that really convinces us that we aren't inherently connected to one another um, that my flourishing isn't bound up with your flourishing but um my flourishing can be set apart and just isolated and only about what happens with me and my own um, and not something that is in accordance with Jeremiah where it tells us that you know we're supposed to seek the peace and the prosperity of our communities because when the peace and the prosperity of others is found. That's where my flourishing is found. Um, And so there are these competing narratives that are at play. um, And I'm just trying to call us to to submit our worldviews to the gospel of Jesus Christ and to see where the gospel calls us into a distinctive way of engaging the world that allows us to live into our creative purpose, which I believe is to make God's name known and love shown throughout the world. Mm-hmm. And, and love is not just this mushy, this mushy emotional kind of reality, but scripture tells us that we know what love is because Jesus laid down his life for us um, and sacrificed for us. And this is where the conversation of privilege really comes back full surface jesus had the privilege to stay in heaven and watch us continue to you know flutter and work our way into destruction but love compelled jesus to leave the the pristine privilege and luxury of heaven to enter in on our behalf and into the brokenness of our world and to endure you know persecution and brutalization and crucifixion on our behalf to liberate us from this kind of captivity to the powers and the principalities so that we can actually live in a way that shows that the rest of the world that something else is possible um and so Jesus is supposed to be our missional model as the people of God and so when Jesus entered in when he didn't have to to demonstrate the love of God that's what we're called to do Here and now, when we, the world tells us that we have the privilege of actually turning a blind eye or passing by on the other side as our neighbors suffer. Jesus tells us that the world will know who we are, who we belong to, by how we choose to respond in those moments. And if we choose to respond by intervening in a way that Jesus first intervened for us, the world is going to notice that there's something distinctive about who and whose we are and they're wanna, they're going to want to know why we choose to live and love the way that we do. And that's where we get the chance to bear witness to the fact that it's not just us or the fact that we're just ethical people, but it's because we have died to ourselves and it's Christ that is risen and now lives in and through us. And we get a chance to make this connection, reconnect with scripture has always connected, which is biblical justice and evangelism. They go hand in hand, but within too many of our congregations, we have Uplifted evangelism at the expense of justice. And we have even allowed the conversation of justice to be something that some churches denounce as gospel or as Christian. And it's nonsensical. Like when we look at the Bible, scripture is very intentional about always connecting evangelism and justice. And somehow along the way, we have bought into a, a half gospel, a partial gospel that is just about either or when scripture tells us it's about the both and, that's why the cross has two dimensions, the vertical and the horizontal, the the right relationship with God and the right relationship with our neighbor. And so for me, I think how we choose to respond in the face of harm and sin and oppression and injustice gives us a chance to bear witness to the fact that we are distinctive, that we are people who live on mission. And that mission is to make God's name known and love shown throughout the world. And when we live in that way, people are going to be curious and they're going to want to know why, what compels us. And that's when we get to point to Jesus and say that this is the source of why we choose to live and love in the way that we do, because there's a power at work in and through us, that's deeper, and greater than us that's compelling us to this type of faithfulness that's reflective of the faithfulness that was first displayed on our behalf that allows us to be these countercultural people in the world
0: yeah uh, all all throughout the book, subversive witness, and we were even talking about this beforehand um, you you have each chapter kind of go through a, a biblical character in that and kind of tease out the different themes of the chapter and how that played out. And you teased it out a little bit with Zacchaeus. I would just be curious to hear whether it's someone in the book or someone in scripture right now that is challenging you or inspiring you in terms of that. Um, who's, who's one that comes to mind right now?
1: So I'll give you two quick ones. Um, one that's inspiring me in regards to where we are as a culture right now and where we are as the Western church is Sparrow's Daughter. Um, It's this beautiful story about how the gospel has the power to break generational cycles of bigotry. That the gospel has the power to transform our vision. That people who we used to see as expendable, as people that we should fear, shun, and avoid and look down upon, we can actually see ourselves as inherently interconnected to. Uh, People who we have been taught have no value can be the same people that compel us to walk out on water um, and take a bold, courageous step towards bearing witness to who and whose we are again, um, in the face of harm, we can we can be transformed by people that we have been taught have little to no value, and that's the power of proximity. Um, and so that's compelling to me because right now we we are li- we are living in an extremely polarized reality where there are a bunch of worldly logics that have established footholds within the church uh, that have allowed us to cling to logics of supremacy and logics of rugged individualism and these different things that really are counterculture, uh, they're, they are counter to the gospel narrative. Um, and I think some folk can kind of start to lose hope that, the gospel is true that that Jesus ultimately does overcome and that the inbreaking kingdom will fully manifest itself in our world and so that story gives me hope because i think sometimes we can think that because of a fam- because of a person uh, being grown, uh, raised in a certain context or within a certain worldview or are connected to a certain oppressive history that they're just destined to carry that on. But this this, this passage is inspiring because it tells us that the spirit actually has the power to, to liberate folks from those kind of shackles and that, that kind of worldview and ideology that is, again, opposes the will of God and so to be able to see kind of that story work itself out and God to make a way out of no way um and for the person who was that close to the epicenter of toxicity to be the one who plays such a critical role in uh helping liberate the people of God is is encouraging um but for me the one that's personally um really inspiring me and in a lot of my work and it's probably one of the reasons why I doubled down and came back to it in this book again, is Paul and Silas. It's just such a beautiful story because I really do believe, I mean, we, we are taught, all of us, Black, White, Asian, Indigenous, like on some level, um, Latin, uh, on some level, we are taught That like, if something doesn't impact us, we don't have to be concerned about it. And that's just, it's such a, on the surface, it doesn't seem that bad. But when you actually submit that to the gospel of Jesus Christ, you see how detrimental that becomes. And it really does allow us to start to believe a lot of this rhetoric that exists so much in our culture when we're talking about like, the, the, um, disparities that exist in, in our world today, so many folks are able to just say, well, you know, I wasn't a part of that. I didn't create that. So I have no responsibility to, to tend to that. And it's just, it's such an anti-gospel way of engaging and thinking, but it's so rooted in our churches. There's so many folks who, when we try to talk about disparities today, they say, well, I never owned a slave. I wasn't part of indigenous land theft. I wasn't part of supporting legislation that led to the Chinese exclusionary act or Japanese internment camps. I didn't have anything to do with that. So that, that has no bearing on my life. And scripture has so much to say about that and actually tells us that, again, we are called to be repairers of the breach. There are breaches that exist because of the sins of our foreparents. And as we inhabit a society that is inequitable, that is unjust, that keeps these kind of anti-gospel chasms at play and even exacerbates them, We get a chance to be a part of mending the gaps, of actually healing the wounds, of actually bringing transformation and liberation in ways that invite people into the family of God and allow us to live on mission and make God's name known and love shown as we reconcile the world in totality to God. And so that's why that story is so, so compelling to me, because Paul and Silas the entire time know that all they have to do is say three words and all of their suffering will come to an end and they choose to suffer with their non-roman sisters and brothers who are subjected to a legal system that is not just and they don't just metaphorically pay a cost They are beaten, they are humiliated, they are falsely incarcerated, and they endure it all to share in the sufferings of Christ, but to stand in solidarity with their neighbors. And then they pull out their status as Roman citizens, and they play their citizenship card to enact accountability for a system that's running amok, to to shine light on the ways in which the system is not doing what it was intended to do, um, and to create exposure for what it looks like for them to reconstruct, well, first deconstruct uh, a legal system that is not being just, and to reconstruct it in a way that all people who go before the legal system actually have a chance to, to have justice um, manifested as they go before the courts. It's a beautiful story of what does it mean to understand what Bonhoeffer talks about when he talks about the cost of discipleship, uh, what Jesus talks about when he talks about the cost of discipleship. And, and I think you know it really brings to bear this question that as you read the book, I know you saw me ask it. And it's a question that I think not enough of our ministers and theologians and preachers and teachers ask, but I think it's a question that the gospel brings to bear. Do we still believe that the gospel is good news when it costs us something? And Paul and Silas emphatically say yes in this story, and it costs them a lot. Um, and I think this is the kind of conversation that we have to have if we're really going to try to To do the hard work of maturing in our faith. And the way that scripture talks about it, and the way I talk about it in the book, is if we're going to move from milk to solid food. And that's what we have to do if we're really going to be intentional about trying to figure out how do we leverage our privilege uh, to advance the kingdom and sacrificially love our neighbor. Uh, We're going to have to have some real conversations about the fact that sometimes privilege, when unbridled, is something that leads us away from the will of god in a way that the only thing that we can do is lay it down we 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 literally just have to walk away from it because it is prohibiting us from discerning what god is calling us into it's prohibiting us from hearing and responding to the cries of our wounded neighbors it's calling us into uh, complicity with the pattern of this world that really causes us to pledge allegiance to a flag over the cross, and we have to be willing to lay it down. And then other times, we just have to do the meticulous work of thinking and discerning and praying uh, with the Spirit and with community to discern, how can I leverage what I've been entrusted with in a subversive way, like Paul and Silas do, like Pharaoh's daughter does, to actually advance the kingdom and sacrificially love my neighbor in a way that allows me to live on mission and to make God's name known and love shown in places where death, despair, and destruction have reigned for too long. How do I make room to bear witness to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ in those places and show the world that something else is possible because they desperately desire something else. And most folks have lost hope that something else is possible, but we get a chance to function as the leaven and the loaf and to bear witness to the fact that God is still at work and that the spirit is doing a new thing. And so that's that's really what's at the heartbeat of what I'm trying to to help the church to to participate and demonstrate and innovate um in this in this critical watershed moment we find ourselves in,
0: yeah, well, I know that people are going to want to pick up you know your book subversive Witness and continue to learn from you. Where's the best place for people to go to do all those things Dominique
1: yeah, so um. You you can find it at any major bookstore, um, Amazon. Um, It's uh, all this week. Thank God it was uh, trending as the number one new release in Christian ethics and um, ranking in Uh, the top 10 in a number of different categories so thanks for your support for folks who have already gotten it Um, there's also an accompanying small group video based curriculum that goes with the book um, that really breaks down each chapter in live time to talk about the complexities of this on the ground in the world that we live in uh, that I would really encourage you to pick up as well it's an 8 week curriculum 20 minutes per session um, and and really get a chance to dive in. But um, Amazon, you can get it from Zondervan, Barnes and Nobles, Target, any place that is a major book uh, distributor, you can pick it up. Um, and I really encourage you to do so and to, to grapple with the content together in community because we can't do this work in isolation. Uh, we need each other to do this work. And I pray that this book really does foster... Some, some new paradigms of discipleship um, within our midst. But I also will say that you can find me on social media. Um, uh, on Facebook, my author page is Dominique Du Bois Gilliard. Um, on Instagram, you can find me at Dominique D. is D in Du Bois Gilliard. So Dominique D. Gilliard. And then on Twitter, I'm DD D. Gilliard. So Dominique Du Bois. So D.D. Gilliard. And those are the different places that you can find me and keep up with the keep up with my work.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks so much for being on the podcast today, and thank you for doing the work as
1: well. Yeah, and thanks for creating space. I really pray that this book book and the content blesses your community and really fosters some new conversations because we do have the ability to have these difficult conversations in the church in a way that's biblically rooted that'll allow us to develop a more faithful, ethic, that leads to a more faithful witness so that more people do come to know the love, mercy, and justice of Jesus Christ, but to also to realize that the way things are aren't the way that they have to be. They're not the way that the God desires them to be, and God has commissioned us as the body of Christ to lead the way, to be a signpost to the world that something else is possible.
0: I think coming out of that conversation with Dominique, it makes me think of, uh, th- really three things that I'm kind of taking away from this conversation are things that uh, have, you know, added uh, added fuel to the fire and things that I've already been thinking about. And I think the first one is just the idea of being aware of what privileges I have or what opportunities I have um, and making sure that I'm being a good steward of those things and that I am using my my privilege, I'm using my uh, my platform to help other people, and and just realizing that that's tied to my faith in Jesus, and so thinking through things like that, that's that's something that uh, that honestly, like I think about with the podcast is wall of who am I having on the podcast, um, and making sure that it's not all one perspective, and thinking through whether that be um, through gender, or through race, or even through um, even through, um, maybe belief systems as well. Of just trying not to, um, trying to, trying to do my best in order to learn from learn from everyone and from everyone, and trying to you know honor and elevate the image of God in everybody. And one of and one of the ways that that I can do that is through platforming other people on the podcast. And so just being more aware of that and not even just on the podcast, but even in my own life as well. And just thinking through things like that. I think the second thing that really stood out to me is just the importance of like paying attention in the things that I'm reading or whether that be, or in this case, you know, of the book of paying attention to history and realizing the different dynamics that go into the things or the content that we're consuming. Because as I mentioned earlier, like, Even reading through the Bible through the lens of privilege and realizing all of the different examples that Dominique goes through through scripture of how people have leveraged privilege, and I had never really thought of that before. And so that's one of the things that I'm thinking about. I'm trying to get better at uh, analyzing uh, stories as well and kind of all the different things that go into those. That's uh, kind of like, I don't know if it's a hobby or what that I'm starting to pick up on, but that I've, uh, I've just started to love doing. And so paying attention to that stuff of like, what's the, what's the subtext? What's the thing under the thing? Um, what's, where's the power dynamics at play here? Um, and and the different aspects of all of that. And so that's the second thing. I think the third thing is kind of what we talked about at the end of just this idea of that faithfully following Jesus requires us to ask, is the gospel still good news when it costs me something? And That's a really tough question to ask, especially whenever, like one of the things I've been thinking about a lot recently is the prosperity gospel and how, uh, and how the statement or even the question of, is the gospel still good news when it costs us something is very, um, opposite of the prosperity gospel. And and for me personally, trying to figure out where have I been influenced by the prosperity gospel, and where have I believed that if if following Jesus cost me something, then that's bad. That's actually and and you know, falling for the belief or falling for the lie that 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 might not be from God. And realizing that that isn't the case, that following Jesus does cost us something and sometimes it's very painful. And honestly, we don't understand. I don't understand everything that goes into that. Um, But I think just, just trying to be more aware of where have I fallen victim to the idea of life is going right, then God is with me. Or if life is not going the way that I want it to be, then it feels like maybe God is not going with me. And so that's something that I'm exploring as well, always trying to You know, Learn and just think through all of those different things as well. So those are some of the things that stood out to me. I would love to hear from you as well as some of the things that stood out to you from this episode or um, just some of the things that you would love us to cover on the podcast as well. And the best way to reach out to me is through this email address, learnerscornerpodcast at gmail.com. Would love to hear from you, Uh, whether that be topics or guests or just things that you're learning about. Yeah, just hit me up through there. Would love to hear from you. Uh, And also, if you enjoyed listening to this episode, make sure you hit subscribe or follow on whatever podcast player you use It's the best way to make sure that you don't miss any episodes of the Learner's Corner podcast. And I would really appreciate if you left a rating and write a review. That would mean a whole ton. So I think that's all that I have for today. Thanks to Sam Massey, who has created the music for this podcast. Thanks to Garrett Oler, who does the editing for this podcast. Thanks again to Dominique for returning and being back on the learner's corner. And thank you for listening all the way to the end of the podcast. My name is Caleb Mason. And until next time, keep learning and keep growing.